Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Demetrius Satiris, a practicing board-certified psychiatrist specializing in the field of anxiety management. He is a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Northeast Ohio Medical University. He studies and writes about the interference of anxiety and achievement. His Psychology Today blog, Anxiety and High Achievers, is viewed by more than 20,000 readers per month. Demetrius, welcome to the show. Aaron, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to have you here. I know that you have written extensively blog posts for Psychology Today, and you've done a great job with presenting information about anxiety. And in particular, you've written a lot about anxiety and achievers or high achievers, which is super important. I know that I have a lot of patients in my practice, and I imagine you have in your practice of people who are professionals, people who achieve, but also suffer from a fair amount of anxiety. Yes, I completely agree, uh, Aaron. You know, what I've noticed is that anxiety has been on the rise, and there are surveys that show that. There was a survey in 2018 from the American Psychiatric Association, and it showed that 40% of American adults were more anxious compared to the year prior. So anxiety has been on the rise even before the pandemic, and uh, I'm noticing that a lot of people are really pushing themselves to meet um, expectations where they set the bar too high. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's a, a situation going on that needs to be addressed. Wow. And just real briefly, have you seen changes or what the effects of the pandemic have been over the past year? Yeah, I, I really have. Um, and it has ebb and flowed as a pandemic has also ebb and flowed, right? So initially, I noticed a significant increase in, in anxiety. People were struggling with the pandemic um, around March of 2020. Mm-hmm. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear for their safety and the well-being of loved ones. Um, I think at this point, I'm noticing some anxiety as people try to transition back to normal, um, back to society. In a way, many people might have um, become accustomed to staying at home all the time, right? Uh, that might have been safer for them. And now kind of going back out into the world, um, many people are finding that um, uh, transition difficult. Well, yeah, well, there's been a lot of transitions in this uh, past year. And of course, with things starting to get back to normal, I I imagine that you're seeing a lot of that. So we'll talk a bit more about the phenomenology of of anxiety and how you're seeing it in your practice as we get going with this interview. But to start with, I'd like to hear a little bit more about you and your professional life and what brought you this particular interest in the area of anxiety and achievers. Thank you, Aaron. So um, I was born in the States, but I grew up in Greece. Uh, I spent the majority of my childhood there, and uh, I returned to the U.S. at 16. And my parents were first-generation immigrants. My dad's um, a cook, and my mom's a cashier at a grocery store. And they always stressed to me the importance of an education to change our family tree. And I completely uh, appreciate their love and support. So when I was um, a freshman in college, I had a cousin six months younger than me who passed away. Mm. And uh, that's when I realized the importance of health. So that kind of got me motivated to uh, pursue medicine. And then when I was in med school, I realized the importance of mental health. I saw many people struggling with depression and anxiety during my medical school training. Um, So that's when I pivoted and uh, specialized in, in psychiatry. That's when I made that decision. Moving forward, uh, you know, I've built my practice. Uh, I have the privilege of helping people from all walks of life. And I'm seeing a, a lot of people struggling with anxiety and a lot of people struggling because they raise their bar of expectations at unattainable and unsustainable levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I may be the college student who's upset for getting a B, or I may be the medical student who is an average medical student, but they're upset about being average in med school, right? Or I might even be the stay-at-home parent who, you know, they expect to keep a spotless home and, you know, take their kids to extracurricular activities every day and to have dinner ready on the table on time. So I'm seeing people continually push themselves. And as they push themselves, they're starting to like break down and buckle from um, putting themselves under tremendous pressure to meet and oftentimes unrealistic expectations. 
Yeah, I think people are putting a lot of pressure on themselves, and that clearly has a big role in this topic of anxiety. So let's talk a little bit about that, first of all. Tell us about anxiety. What are some of the hallmark features of anxiety and some of the symptoms associated with anxiety? And maybe also, is there a difference between, I guess, anxiety with a lowercase a and an anxiety disorder? Like, how do we put this all into perspective to understand it? Yeah, great question. Um, So anxiety is that it's a universal human experience. You know, we're all aware of it. It's that sense of dread, of apprehension that we experience in anticipation of something, right? It might be that feeling that you get before taking an exam or before a job interview, right? Or it might be that feeling uh, before giving a talk, right? So it's that feeling of dread that we experience in anticipation of something in the future. And it has a number of symptoms. Some are physical, some are more cognitive. So examples of physical symptoms of anxiety, I mean, they can occur from head to toe because anxiety stimulates our sympathetic nervous system or flight or fight response. And that rush of cortisol can, it can affect us, um, our entire body. Mm-hmm. I've heard of patients uh, mention tension headaches, a lump in their throat, uh, some chest tightness or shortness of breath, heart racing, shakiness, feeling more sweaty and upset stomach. Uh, so these are examples of physical symptoms. It can be harder for people to sleep also because they're more activated with when they're anxious. Uh, and then some cognitive um, symptoms that I notice, for example, people can engage in worst case scenario thinking. They may uh, complain of racing thoughts as it worry thoughts rush through their head, right? A lot of people complain of fatigue as well because it, you know, to to be in a state of anxiety chronically that can be quite exhausting. You also asked about anxiety with small a and big a, so I do want to distinguish, make a distinction there. Sure. So when when we talk about anxiety with a small a, that's the experience of anxiety that we're all aware of, we've all experienced it. It's part of the human condition. But when we talk about anxiety with a capital A, we're referring to an anxiety disorder. And by disorder, we're referring to something that can interfere with our ability to function, our day-to-day functioning. For example, if someone is so anxious that they're afraid to leave their house because they're afraid of having a panic attack, or somebody is so um, anxious that they're unable to sleep because they cannot shut their mind off, right? Or somebody is having such profound anxiety that they're having such physical symptoms to the degree that it makes it hard for them to live their day-to-day life to work, to be engaged with family members, to speak to someone, right? So that's an important distinction because when somebody is suffering from capital A anxiety, that's when they really need to seek, they need to seek help from a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. Okay, good point. And I'm wondering, I think you've written about this before, like anxiety kind of sucks, right? (laughs) It's no fun. Most people have anxiety will tell you that. So why on earth do we have anxiety in the first place? Is there some function or purpose that serves the human condition? Yeah, you're right. I mean, why would we have all these symptoms that I just described, right? But from an evolutionary standpoint, anxiety serves an important function. It protects us. It helps us stay on guard. It helps us be proactive, right? If we look at the environment that our ancestors had to survive in, uh, it's not the environment that we have today. You know, they would go for a drink in a pond and there might have been a gator uh, waiting for them lurking under the pond. Or maybe they'd go for a walk and there might be a cheetah lurking for them behind a bush. So, you know, the, the function of the brain from an evolutionary standpoint is not to make us happy. The function of the brain is to protect us and keep us on guard looking for potential threats. Mm-hmm. Now, our environment has changed. The environment in 2021 is way different than what it was a thousand years ago or a hundred thousand years ago, but evolution happens at a snail's pace. So we have this rapidly evolving environment, and now we need different things to worry about, such as what do people think about us or our job performance, or what if something happens to our kids? So if I'm understanding correctly, it might feel to us if we're getting a B on a test, that's a little bit like I'm about to get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger if that anxiety system is kicking in the way that it was evolutionarily designed to. 
Yeah, for some people, earning a B on a report card is the end. It's like, oh my God, am I going to be able to graduate? Will I get the job that I want? Uh, what if this B comes to bite me in the future? So yeah, they looked at that B as a potential threat to their future. Mm -hmm, got it. Let's talk briefly about you're a psychiatrist, correct, in practice. So let's talk a little bit about some of the techniques that you use for treating and reducing symptoms of anxiety. What are sort of like in your toolbox of the most helpful and useful things that you utilize as a clinician? That's a great question. So I look at anxiety as a biopsychosocial phenomenon. So there are biological variables that can contribute to one's anxiety, such as chemical imbalances in the brain or Maybe we consume substances that do us no favors when it comes to anxiety. An example would be the use of alcohol, for example, or stimulant, mm -hmm. essentially, right? Um, psychological forces that um, increase anxiety, such as thought patterns that make us more prone to anxiety that we can talk about later, such as worst case scenario thinking, and environmental factors, society. Quite frankly, we don't live in a bubble we're going to be affected by our surrounding environment. We're going to be affected by a job loss or if something happens to a loved one. So because anxiety, in my opinion, is biopsychosocial, then I need to address it with all three facets. So there are times that I have to engage in biological interventions, like pharmacological interventions. And there are times that I have to engage in uh, psychological interventions, such as pointing out these thought patterns that contribute to anxiety. And there are times that we have to look at some of the social variables that contribute to anxiety. So it's a biopsychosocial phenomenon and it requires a biopsychosocial uh, approach. So you mentioned medications and then the interventions for the cognitive aspect. Would that be just sort of like cognitive behavioral therapy types of yeah. techniques? Example, I'm, I'm a huge fan of CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, because mm -hmm. There are thought patterns and behavior patterns that exposes to anxiety. And many people do not even have the insight that they're engaging in th patterns of thinking and behaving that make them vulnerable to anxiety, right? Examples of behavior patterns may be uh, some difficulties with setting boundaries and saying no, and then we end up uh, spread too thin and overwhelmed, right? Or an example of a thought pattern, again, may be uh, jumping to conclusions and thinking worst case scenario. Um, so I'm a huge fan of CBT. Yeah. Uh, as far as an approach to anxiety. And there are other interventions, other therapeutic interventions as well that are also um, beneficial to anxiety as well. So it's not just CBT, but I do believe that CBT, and this is supported by evidence, uh, is effective uh, to treating anxiety. What's the role of mindfulness in the treatment of anxiety and conceptualizing anxiety? Thank you. And that is another great intervention, right? Because when we have anxiety, Aaron, you know, we're thinking into the future. I mean, anxiety is defined as not being present in the moment. Either we're thinking about the future from a negative lens, a negative point of view, or we're ruminating on the past from a negative point of view. An example would be at night when we're thinking about the people that we spoke with the day of or our performance at work. Did I do a good job? How did my conversation go with that person? Did I make a mistake? So anxiety is defined as not being present. And the beauty of meditation is that it is a technique that helps us come back to the here and now. And there are different types of meditation. Uh, an example is mindfulness meditation where, you know, in a quiet room, we spend a few minutes and we observe the mind. We observe the anxiety provoking thoughts that it generates. We observe the pattern of worrying that it produces. And we just gently notice that and bring the mind back to the present, back to the breath. And it sounds so simple, and yet it is so hard to do because, again, our mind, our brain, is its function is to generate thoughts that serve to protect us. Yeah. So the act of bringing it back to the here and now, that is the bicep curl of the brain. Yeah, I think meditation practices are very, very important and very useful. But I would say even in a, in a psychotherapy modality, a, a big part of it is getting people to just be able to slow their brain down and figure out what is my brain saying to myself? What's my mind saying that is causing me to feel anxious? Because a lot of times people are not consciously aware of the thoughts to begin with. I agree 100%. I've had so many people come to me. Well, first of all, they don't even know that they're anxious. 
they, they, they come to me and they're telling me I'm irritable or I'm on edge or I'm, on, I'm tense or I'm not sleeping. So they don't even know that they're having anxiety. So I have to point that out to them, number one. But then number two, they're not even aware of what they're anxious about. They haven't even defined their worry. So they, I'm, I'm like, what are you anxious about? And they tell me I'm anxious about everything. I'm like, well, <laughs> everything. let's slow down here. Let's, let's grab a pen and paper. And what are your top three anxiety provoking worries? Let's, let's talk about them. I mean, that act in itself and psychotherapy is extremely beneficial for our patients. Yeah, it just helps break it down and at least define what the areas are that are causing the problems to begin with. I think you're right that a lot of times people are just unaware of that. A lot of what you've written about in particular has to do with achievers, high achieving people or, or people who their anxiety is focused or centered around areas of their profession, around school. What is it about this obsession with achievement and the thinking that people have around achievement that cause them so much trouble? Like, why as a culture do we struggle with that, do you think? That's a, that's a great question. And, and, you know, there was a survey at Harvard done a few years ago that showed that our youth, they care most about achievement versus making a positive contribution to the life of other people, like, like empathy, for example, and caring mm. for others. So we're definitely more self-centered as a society here in the West. And, and I think it's twofold. I think, number one, there's this myth that success equals happiness. And we pursue success because we believe that that is the path to happiness. And that is such a false belief because, you know, I have the privilege of working with people from all walks of life. And there are plenty of people that I work with who are, quote, successful on paper, and yet they're suffering behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But we're just perpetuating this myth that success equals happiness. I think the other variable is social media. The, the issue with social media is that it has hijacked our tendency to engage in social comparisons. So social comparisons are part of the human condition. We use others as a measuring stick. But the problem is that our tendency to engage in social comparisons has been hijacked and is on steroids because nowadays, you know, when we go on social media, we don't compare our life to one other single life. We compare our life, our real and messy life to a stream of lives as they appear to be on our newsfeed. Mm -hmm. You spend 30 seconds on social media scrolling and you've subconsciously or consciously compared yourself <laughs> these glamorized lives, 30, 40, 50 lives. And how do you feel in that moment? You feel not good enough. You feel inadequate. So what's the response to compensate? I got to jump on this hamster wheel and do more and more. So I think it's, it's twofold. I think number one, the mythology that success equals happiness because we forget that success comes with challenges. And number two, social media has triggered, has exacerbated our tendency to engage in social comparisons. Yeah, that's so true what you're saying about the social media. I mean, how often does somebody go on a Facebook or a Twitter feed or whatever and hear somebody saying, yeah, I woke up today. I'm not good enough. I'm not doing enough. My life is not valuable. Things sort of suck for me. And if you're reading this, you're probably better than me. I, I agree. People present themselves a certain way. They present a facade. So I, I told you, I came to the States at 16. And you can imagine how many friends I had being the foreign kid in high school. Yeah. Zero, right? I was the foreign kid eating lunch by myself at 16. And that was a difficult experience. There were obviously social comparisons for me at that age. But when I came home, there was no social media. I had the safety of my home. I could escape high school being at home, having a loving father, loving mother, and a loving brother. Now, if somebody is bullied at school or somebody is having issues at work, they come home and they check their social media and the comparisons only continue. Mm. Yes, social media has benefits. This is how we connect it, for example, Aaron, but it also has potential drawbacks and people need to be very mindful of that. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about some of the common anxiety provoking habits that achievers tend to have. I know that there's patterns that you see and you've talked about before. One of them, you mentioned about the difficulty saying no. One of the things that I've observed is that, you know, people who are achievement oriented, 
they have a hard time saying no to others. They feel responsibility, a sense of obligation, and even guilt uh, when it comes to saying no to requests. As a result, it's easier for them to say yes, and they assume extra responsibilities. The problem with that is that you end up spread too thin and overwhelmed. And also you experience some resentment because you really want to say no, but you end up saying yes, or you do something, but you really don't want to do it, right? So this really affects their psyche. And the way I try to help my patients cope with that is by challenging the thoughts that lead to feelings of guilt. And also to remind them that saying no is unavoidable. Like if you never say no to others, you end up saying no to your inner peace. So at the end of the day, who are you going to say no to? Because you have to say no. So you're sacrificing yourself for the benefit of other people. And then you end up feeling miserable, guilty, anxious, overwhelmed. Yes. And I encourage people to say yes to themselves because when we press pause and we put some fuel in our tank, that helps us serve others better. That helps us be better parents, better spouses, better, you know, mental health providers. So it's important that we spend some time to take care of ourselves so we can meet our different responsibilities more effectively and more efficiently. How about having a hard time asking for help? Well, so achievement-oriented individuals, they have more faith in their ability to get things done versus other people, right? Because, you know, they have a track record, you know, as an achiever, you know that you'll get the job done some way, somehow, you'll, you know, you'll grit your teeth, you'll clench your fist, but the job will get done. The problem with that, again, is that people become dependent on you. You become the person that, that the go-to person that everyone comes to, number one. So we're going to go to Aaron because he never says no, and we know the job gets done. And number two, the, the, the issue is that each one of us individually has a ceiling. There's only mm -hmm. so much Aaron that you can do or that I can do. And we tend to be more efficient and effective if we can work and synergy with other people. Because quite frankly, we're interdependent beings. You know, when I'm at my practice, I'm relying on my staff to take care of the phone calls behind the scenes, right? Or the emails. When I'm at, you know, at work, I rely on my wife to watch the kids, right? So in reality, we're interdependent. And it's important for us to delegate appropriately and to empower other people to help us and to find ways to help them. We're interdependent beings. But I think it's a reflex for achievement-oriented people to assume the entire responsibility of every project. And that ultimately comes at a cost. So I guess examples of that would be if a person is in a work setting and they work with colleagues or they have supervisees, people that they're supervising, having a hard time delegating, I imagine, right? Or uh, a group project in school and feeling like, well, I'm just, I'm just gonna do all of this myself. So I get the A because I'm afraid these people won't be able to help me get the A. Those are perfect examples. Thank you. It's like the, the A student in college who there's five people on the team and they end up doing 90% of the work. Yes. Or it could be the manager at work who's doing the work of the intern because they have a hard time trusting and delegating to the intern. But that's an enabling behavior. Like if we look at it from the other person's point of view, the person who's being enabled, like if you are going to do the work and they know that you'll do the work and they'll get an A for not putting in any effort, then why would they put in the effort? Right, but not only that, they might get the message, I'm not good enough to contribute to get the A, so this person is better than me, so I might as well just give up here. I mean, it's disempowering in some ways to that other person. Absolutely, that's a great point. And you know, leadership is about empowering other people to be engaged, to be involved, to take ownership, right? And that leads to win-win solutions. That's a great example. Thank you. How about this idea of comparisons and comparing oneself? We talked a little bit about that with looking at the social media, um, but let's let's say a little bit a little bit more about about that in terms of somebody's in a work situation, they're climbing up the ladder in their job, they're doing their stuff, and they are comparing themselves to other people around them in the workplace. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting when we compare ourselves to others, we engage in vertical comparisons where we focus on people who tend to appear to be at a higher level than us. They tend to appear to be more successful, right? Or, you know, they might be more successful at work than us, but they might be struggling at home and behind the scenes that we don't know that. And what I remind people to do is that instead of 
fixating so much and comparing themselves to other people, focus on yourself and compare yourself to where you've been, where you are, and where you're heading. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to achieving our goals, many people can achieve their goals because we're all climbing a different mountain. Mm-hmm. Somebody can, you know, succeed and achieve their goals, be it, I don't know, writing a book and somebody else can write a book as well about a different topic or about a similar topic, right? Or somebody might get the promotion at work and somebody else maybe will find a different way to better themselves and climb the ladder at work, maybe through a different promotion, right? So I think there's multiple pathways for us to reach the our, our desired goal, our desired destination, because in reality, we're not competing with one another. In reality, we're competing with ourselves against time. And we all have our goals, whatever those are. And it's about continuing to make progress in our personal lives to get to those individual goals that we have. I think that's such an important point. Nobody's life trajectory is the same as anybody else's life trajectory. We all have our own skills. We have our own trajectories that we're on. It's very difficult to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and compare yourself to that person. And I, I know like for me, like I've never been really good at anything in my opinion. i am always been just a little bit above average in a lot of things, but I've never been the superstar. And I've known superstars that are superstars in certain areas. But when I take a step back and I say, well, you know, that's not me. I don't see my, I've never been a superstar but I'm really, really good at a lot of different things. And that's my strength. And that allows you to be um, multifaceted and to be adaptable, right? And let me say this, there are some people who are really, really good at one thing, but then really, really bad at other things, right? I've noticed that like all or nothing in some people, right? So, yeah. you know, they like be, you know, average or above average or below average in different areas. That That's okay. Again, it's about, you setting your goals and you working towards reaching your goals. That's what it's about, you know? But again, we tend to focus on people who appear to be more successful in areas that we're interested in. That makes perfect sense. That's right. Well, we talked a little bit about mindfulness, but let's touch a little bit more again about not being present in the moment and always looking at looking ahead. Where does that cause like your a person in the workplace and school and areas of their life, problems with them being able to handle where they're at and what they're trying to do um, efficiently and effectively. Yeah. So I I think if we want to reach our goals, we have to win the here and now. If you want to run a a half marathon, you know, mile 12 does not matter when you're at mile one, you know, you need to do well in mile one to get to mile two, three, and so on. Right. Right. So at the end of the day, we really have to win the here and now. And if we continue to put together good days, those become weeks and then months. And then ultimately we get to where we want to be. But I think the issue is that people want too much too fast. They have a hard time appreciating winning the day, right? Because it's hard to see the progress within a day. And that's why I remind people, like, hey, compare yourself to like where you were a year ago or three years ago, or five years ago, because that's when you can really see the progress and the improvement, right? But, you know, so, sometimes, you know, and again, we live in a society where it seems like everyone's achieving. It seems like, you know, we're falling behind because of social media and because of these unfair and unrealistic social comparisons. So people want quick and immediate results. And I remind people, there's no quick fix. Slow down, take your time, Focus on what you can control in the here and now. And if you keep on taking care of the here and now, the work will speak for itself and opportunities will come to you. Mm -hmm. Opportunities will come to you. Yeah. I mean, almost nobody is a prodigy, right? Those are very few and far between. Most people really need to put a lot of work and effort into the things they're trying to do. And it it takes time to develop whatever the skill might be. Yeah, I agree. And It's also helpful to focus on two areas that are important. Number one is making progress. And number two is making a positive contribution in the life of others. Because I think if we keep that in the forefront on our frontal lobes, I think it helps us stay more present. It helps us be more patient. I think if we're chasing these results that social media often glamorizes and the media in general, 
I think that's when we end up in trouble. But I think if we find a way to appreciate making a positive contribution to the life of another human being or find a way to appreciate the small victories in the day, like slowing down and pausing and appreciating those victories, I think it helps us be more present, be more persistent, stick with the plan, stay on path. Uh, so I think that's one way to be more present. Well, when you're helping other people, you're also, I think, just more connected to humanity, right? You're, you're not comparing yourself to people. You're not thinking, am, am, I, am I adding up? I mean, you're in the dirt with people who you're trying to help, who have their life struggles. It's very hard to be focused on you know, am I failing in my career when you're helping somebody who's really struggling and needs you? And, and one usually feels really good about themselves when they can provide that to another person. It, it really feeds the soul, so to speak. I completely agree with you. And um, I think we all have that opportunity in our lives. You know, um, your patients listening to this, uh, they definitely have that opportunity. It may be, you know, finding a way to make a positive impact in our families or a friend you know, or someone in the neighborhood, right? We, we all have those opportunities, regardless of where we are, you know, as far as our level of income or social status or, you know, whatever titles we have next to our names, like we're all human beings. We all have different strengths and abilities and we can all find ways to use those and be resourceful to help others. So I completely agree with you. I imagine you have many patients who are just overworking themselves. So in big cities, you have people who are in the financial industries or different places that they're just driving themselves to the bone and they have very little time for just about anything else. Like, do you find yourself trying to advise or coach these people to tone it back a little bit and find more balance? Absolutely. And you'll be surprised that even happens with a stay-at-home parent who expects to like have a spotless home every day kids' responsibilities, right? And make sure that dinner's ready on time and to go to every extracurricular activity every day of the week, right? And um, I mean, make sure that their, their, their yard is perfectly uh, organized, you know, and the bushes are perfectly trimmed. So, you know, this is happening in multiple uh, facets. I know, under, understandably so, that we see this in some professions such as, you know, the business world or medicine or law, but this is... Um, quite prevalent in society. It really is. What I ask people is, let's look at your expectations here, these self-imposed and societal expectations. And let's ask ourselves, what would you tell a loved one? Pretend that a son, a daughter, a sibling, a spouse is putting themselves under the same level of pressure because of the same self-imposed expectations. What would you tell them? Would you tell them to push themselves to the bone or would you tell them like, hey, slow down, it's okay. Because the way you talk to a loved one is how you have to talk to yourself. Yeah, that's such a great point, Demetrius. We're usually the harshest on ourselves with the expectations we have, with the judgments and criticisms, how hard we push each other. And I don't think I've almost ever had a situation where I've asked somebody that exact question that you asked, what would you tell your daughter or son or loved one? They would never tell them the same thing that they're saying to themselves or they're pushing themselves. So why the double standard, right? Exactly. This is what I do in my personal life. You know, um, again, as a human being, I have my anxiety experiences as well and my desire to achieve like everyone else. And, you know, I'll ask myself, well, what would I tell my son in the future or my future daughter? What would I tell them if they were in my shoes? And that really helps me clarify my decisions moving forward. That's an important thing as a parent to try to set an example as a role model, how you would like them to be able to handle their lives as an, as an adult, as you're sort of modeling that. Let's talk a little bit about this concept of fear of success and fear of failure. I know that those terms are often sort of thrown around by people. I'd, I'd like to really knuckle down and see what these actually mean. Uh, so let's start with a fear of failure. Like, how do you kind of define that in layperson's terms and how one would look out for whether or not that's something that's affecting them? Yeah, so fear of failure is when someone wants to pursue something in their heart of hearts, but they refuse to do so. They refuse to take action 
because they're afraid of having a negative outcome. It may be someone, for example, who wants to uh, ask someone on a date, but they're afraid to do so because they're afraid of being rejected. Or maybe someone who wants to apply for a job or a promotion, but they don't do so because they're afraid of having a negative outcome. And there are a lot of layers to the fear of failure, which we can dive into. One, for example, is that people take failure personally. They really beat themselves up for experiencing failure. And what I remind people is that failure is a universal human experience. We all fail. I fail, you fail, Aaron, we all fail. It's part of the human condition. Demetrius, I fail most of the time, actually. You both, I'm raising my hand too. <laughs> and the reason is because it's a human experience. It's part of the cond human condition. If you're not pushing yourself, you're never going to fail, right? But when you put yourself out there, there will be failures. But the beauty is, the key is, how do we respond to failure? Do we allow failure to define us? And do we beat ourselves up over failure? Or do we learn from it and grow from it? So that's the key uh, question that we have to ask ourselves. So we have to be able to tell ourselves, hey, I failed, people fail. It's not because I'm a loser or I'm incapable of succeeding. Uh, this is what happens sometimes. Not every person who I ask out on a date is going to want to go out with me or anybody else, right? Like there is no person who's going to get a date with every person they ask on a date. No, I agree. So uh, a couple thoughts. Number one, when it comes to the arena of love, it is so hard to meet mm. the right person at the right time at the right place, right? And the majority of us have a low batting average when it comes to, the, to, to dating. I call it one out of X. X is mm -hmm. all the failures and rejections we've all had. And one is that one healthy relationship. I met my wife in 2011. There were plenty of failures and rejections before that, okay? So that's the one thing I remind people. And number two, the great ones even fail. Like if we look, read the biographies of Michael Jordan or, or Thomas Edison, they all experienced tremendous failures. And the way they responded to failure, looking at it as a learning opportunity, as a chance for growth, that's what led to their ultimate success. Right. I imagine if Thomas Edison gave up the first time he tried to light a light bulb, I don't know too much about the experiments he did, but I'm, I'm guessing the first time he tried to do it, it didn't work. And so it did the 10,000th time. It took him 10,000 tries for Thomas Edison. Wow. I have such inspiration for somebody who's able to say, you know, I found 10,000 times, 10,000 ways that it doesn't work to uh, have a light bulb. Right. So that's pretty incredible that the, the grit, the persistence that he had. Yeah. What are some of the other layers of the fear of failure? Yeah. The other one is that we, we engage in what is known as thought, uh, and I'm sorry, an action identity fusion, which means that I have failed, therefore I am a failure, right? The problem is when we intermingle our self-worth to our uh, level of performance, right? So it's okay for us to fail. And that just because we failed, that does not mean that we are a failure. It just means that we have some room for improvement when it comes to performing a specific task. But people make the mistake of associating time, their self-worth based on whether they succeed or fail on a task that they put a lot more extra pressure on the outcome. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of fear of success. What does that mean? And how is that different than a fear of failure? Yeah, so it's a little different. And, and here's what happens. So, and it's, it's more subtle, but let's assume that someone wants to pursue a job promotion. They really want the job promotion. They're not afraid of failing, but they're actually afraid of getting it because mm -hmm. they understand that when you succeed, and achieving a goal, life changes. Like when you have a job promotion, life will not be the same anymore. And people, we don't often like change. For example, when it comes to getting a job promotion, that success, hey, it also comes with greater responsibility. You might also be under greater scrutiny, right? A personal example that I, I share with people is that when I was a, a, a doctor in training, a physician in training, it was nice having that attending physician, that supervising physician co-signing in my notes. I had that safety net. That was nice. 
But when I became an attending um, eight years ago, hey, I noticed an initial increase in anxiety because I didn't yeah. have that safety net anymore. There was no attending co-signing not my notes. Now it was my name alone on there, right? Now I'm the one supervising residents. People are aware that success comes with change. It comes with increase in responsibilities, increase in the level of scrutiny. Because of that, that gives them cold feet and they step away. Are they consciously acknowledging usually that like, well, I don't know if I want to take that job because then I'm going to be responsible. And if something goes wrong, I'm going to be the one blamed. So I better not do it. Or is there, if it's more sort of like subconscious sabotaging that takes place? Yeah. Yeah. So most people are not aware of it, you know, and again, what is the, the purpose of therapy? The purpose of therapy is to improve insight and self-awareness, you know, and as I talk with people and ask open-ended questions, like, hey, what would it be like if you actually got this job promotion? Like, can you describe to me like what your life would you, would, would be like? Do you, would you happen to have any fears about this? And if so, what? That is what has clued me into the fact that people experience the fear of success. Because of that fear of success, either people, they don't apply themselves to reaching that goal, or they find ways to avoid it. They procrastinate endlessly. Oh yeah, I want that job promotion. Or oh yeah, I want to ask that person out on a date. You know, but they don't apply themselves. They don't take that action uh, because of that fear. And I think there's more shame associated with the fear of success than the fear of failure because we live in a society that glamorizes success. And I think people are embarrassed to say that. Hey, I am afraid of you know, getting that job promotion of becoming an attending physician, right? Of no longer being a student, right? Because our society glamorizes and idealizes success. And we never talk about the fact that success comes with challenges, mm -hmm. right? We never talk about that. We just idealize success as the key to happiness. But success is, a, again, it's a double-edged sword. It also, you know, comes with its fair share of challenges. Is that something that when people refer to this idea of an imposter syndrome, is that somehow tied into this idea of the fear of success? Like now I'm in this role. Oh my gosh, should I be here? Did, did they make a mistake putting me, putting this white coat on me and calling me doctor? Yeah. In a way it's relinquishing their role in a way it's saying, Hey, this is not me. This is luck. This is external events. I had nothing to do with this. And it, I do believe that the imposter syndrome is associated with the fear of success. It's, it's almost like, yeah, it, it, it's not me. You know, so if anything were to happen to me, well, I wasn't supposed to be here anyways to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a, an association there. And, and again, I learned so much from my patients just kind of hearing their stories and how they interpret these experiences. And it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. With our remaining time, let's spend a little bit of time talking about I guess what we would call cognitive distortions or irrational beliefs. I know you've written about several of these and they're always fun and interesting to talk about. And they're so widespread and ubiquitous among anxiety, people with anxiety. So let's pick a few of your favorites. Yeah, let's start with like worst case scenario thinking because I hear about it every day. So let's yeah. start with one. So what happens with worst case scenario thinking and anxiety is that people fixate on the worst possible outcome from a number of outcomes, a number of possible outcomes, and they forget that it may have a low probability of occurrence and they treat it as inevitable and imminent. An example may be somebody having a fear of driving because they don't want to end up in a car accident. And, you know, I remind them, well, how many times have you driven and how many car accidents have you been in? And let's look at the odds. And in general, the odds of being in an accident are very low, right? So that would be an example of worst case scenario, catastrophic thinking. And you go about that typically by sort of looking at evidence and, or, and data about whether or not the worst case scenario, how likely it is, statistical probabilities. Is that sort of the method with CBT that you typically use? Yeah, I typically ask people, well, what do you think are the odds of you ending up in an accident, you know, for example? Um, let, let's look at your life experiences. Like how long have you been driving and how many accidents have you been in? And let's just look at the odds. So that's like the first thing that we'll do. Okay. So we're dealing with something that has a low probability of occurrence. And then number two, well, what are things that we can do to lower the odds of a catastrophic outcome? Like what can you focus on? So you wear your seatbelt, 
you know, maybe um, you drive, you know, earlier during the day and avoid driving at night if that's what you want to do, right? Um, maybe you, you practice on the weekends when there's fewer people um, in the street, right? So what are things that we can do to further lower those odds? You know, maybe we don't have our cell phones on or we keep the radio off to make sure that we're more alert, right? That helps people focus on, okay, I have low odds and what can I do to feel even safer by further lowering those odds? Yeah, Demetrius, regarding the driving one, I think the classic one is like people who have a fear of flying and their fear is that the plane is gonna crash. And of course, if we're looking at statistical probabilities of getting in an accident and not to make anybody scared about driving, but the probabilities are a lot higher than that than they are with flying. But people who have the fear of flying oftentimes have no fear of being on the road. I completely agree with you. And that's another great example, the fear of flying, right? And um, I've had patients who refuse to fly for fear of an accident. So we actually do our homework and like, well, what are the odds? What do you think they are? You know, and they give me the answer, they figure it out. And having the data is anxiety reducing. So what are some other cognitive distortions you typically see in your practice? Hmm. How about taking things personally? That's another one, right? Uh, we, we, we talk to someone and they seem to be upset at us and we're nervous and anxious that we said the wrong thing and we upset them and ruined their day when in reality, maybe they're just having a bad day, you know, or maybe there's something going on at home. So, you know, when, when personalization happens, we take external events and we attribute them to our own fault, when in reality, it wasn't our fault to begin with. Any others? Yeah. And how about I mentioned stacking? I like that one. So a lot of times when people come to me with anxiety and I ask them, what are you anxious about? They'll tell me everything. And they just like rattle off a number of worries, you know, worrying about their kids, their job performance, you know, mowing the lawn the next day, you know, I mean, you name it, you know. And what I do is I, I remind them that, you know, when we stack our worries one on top of the other, we buckle from the from their collective weight. And number two, we, we're not even sure what we're worried about. Hmm. They don't have the same significance. Like you worrying about your lawn, you know, is not this, and what people think of your lawn is not the same as, you know, you worrying about the well-being of your children, right? So let's let's look at each worry individually and let's rank them from like most anxiety provoking to least anxiety provoking. But what we do is we take all our worries, all our anxieties, we put them in a pot of boiling water, we stir the pot and get crappy soup, and we don't even know what the ingredients of the soup are, mm -hmm. right? So that's what happens when we stack one on top of the other, and they're often not even related. Does it help people to see that some of the things that they're worried about really aren't worth the time and energy worrying about so that the ones that there may actually be some consequences of importance that they can spend their time focusing in on those and working on them in an effective therapeutic way. Absolutely. Exactly. So, so, so that's why I asked them like, what's, what's the least anxiety provoking? What's the most anxiety provoking? So we look at the least anxiety and might be taking care of their house or, you know, Oh, I have to like, you know, host a birthday party next month, you know, I'm like, okay, well, you know, what's the worst that can happen in these situations? What your yard isn't uh, well kept or yeah. somebody doesn't have the greatest time at a birthday party. Like what, what, how does that really affect you? Like, can you handle that worst case scenario? Yeah. I think people, people can typically handle that worst case scenario. Right. So then we can start to eliminate some of the worries that maybe don't carry as much significance focus on the ones that matter. Maybe someone's worried about the well-being of a loved one who's in the hospital, right? That's legitimate worry. Mm -hmm. That's appropriate. Let's, let's talk about that one. Let's focus on that one. Let's kind of put the other ones on the side because they're not as important. And let's focus on really what really matters. Or, hey, I, I did a poor job at my, at my job the other day. I got a poor eval. Okay, well, let's focus on that because, you know, providing for your family relies on your job performance. So let's really focus on the worries that really matter, that really have consequence. But again, our brain is just generating worry thoughts and it lumps them all together. Right. And I think your examples about not having the perfect party that you're throwing, the house not being perfectly clean, all these perfectionist types of thoughts are really important because most of the time, nobody else really cares but us. 
right? The house can be a little bit messy. Your guests aren't looking at the fact that there's books that are stacked a little bit unevenly on some bookshelf or that you forgot to put the pot of spaghetti sauce away. Like they're not focused on those things, right? And, and if they are, isn't that a reflection on them rather than yes. you? Like if somebody's going to be so judgmental that they're going to focus on, oh my goodness, that um, that crayon marker on my wall because I have young kids in my house, you know, is that a reflection on me or is that a reflection on them for being super judgmental and unappreciative of the fact that I'm, I've invited them to my house and I'm trying to be a good host? Right? Exactly right. The response you'd want to have is, oh, isn't that cute? Your kid drew on the on the wall. He he he. That's happened to me before. But that's parenthood, right? That is parenthood. You know, I personally have a, a four year old and a two year old, mm. and you know, you can imagine sometimes it's just survival mode. You know, oh, and yeah. if, uh, just color and paint and put their drawings all over the house. You know, that's fine. We just like tape them around the house. It is what it is, right? Yeah. Demetrius, any last thoughts you want to share with us on this subject before we finish up for today? Yeah, absolutely. You know, number one, I want to remind people that anxiety is a universal human experience. We all experience it uh, to have anxieties to be human. So uh, again, if, if someone's experiencing difficulties with their anxiety, it's important to get help, right? It's important to get uh, professional help, but, and, and there's no shame in having anxiety and experiencing anxiety. Again, it's, it's a common universal human experience, number one. And number two, I encourage people not to tie their self-worth on their level of success because you know our self-worth as human beings is an innate and essential part of our humanity right but the mistake that we make is we tie our worthiness to our productivity to our titles to our degrees to our wealth and that's the mistake that we engage in and i think if we can disconnect the two I think we can achieve for the right reasons, which is to, to grow, to live a full life, and to make a positive contribution to the life of others. So I hope people will consider that uh, idea. Those are really wise and sage words, Demetrius. Thank you so much for that. And I've really enjoyed having you on the episode. This was really important information. I think people who are struggling with anxiety, or interested in understanding anxiety better will really benefit from this. So thanks so much. Aaron, thank you for having me. I had a blast and uh, uh, I look forward to doing this again in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.